Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for 20 years, and it's a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. On 25th of January this year, the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, Gabriel McClough, spoke at the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Finance and published his letter to the Minister for Finance on the bank's regulatory priorities for the year ahead. The central bank's focus is on regulating for an evolving financial system, Governor McClough said. Ireland is a global financial centre with the third largest fund sector in the world, largest insurance market in the EU and has seen significant growth in credit institutions and are also seeing growth in the payments and e-money sectors. Growth in these sectors is complemented by rapid change through digitalisation and technological innovation. These changes bring both opportunities and risks and will require us to adapt our regulatory approach. So the priorities for the year include developing the central bank's consumer protection framework implementing the individual accountability framework and addressing the systemic risks generated by non-banks. I'm delighted to have with me here today Sharon Donnery, Deputy Governor, Financial Regulation at the Central Bank of Ireland. Sharon was appointed Deputy Governor, Financial Regulation on the 21st of July 2022. She's an ex-officio member of the Central Bank Commission and is a member of the Supervisory Board of the European Central Bank. As Deputy Governor of Financial Regulation, Sharon is responsible for leading credit institution supervision, insurance supervision, policy and risk, and prudential analytics and inspections directorates. Welcome, Deputy Governor, to the Compliance Files, and thank you for talking to us today. I know it's a very busy day for you. No, thanks, Million. I can't think it's great to be here. It's nice to have the opportunity to talk to your listeners. So we'll start with yourself, um, Sharon. Could you please take our listeners through your current role as Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland? and describe for them the responsibilities of that role. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that I've actually worked at the central bank for a very long time. So I've a sort of strong background in uh, central banking and, and regulation. Um, and as you mentioned yourself, I took up my current role as deputy governor of financial regulation uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that followed on, though, being uh, deputy governor of central banking um, also for uh, a number of years. Um, so maybe I'll talk about my role in, in three different parts. Uh, the first in terms of my line management responsibilities, which you touched on there. Uh, then a little bit about some of our European and international work. And then maybe also you mentioned the Central Bank Board. Uh, so I'll come back to that. Um, so in terms of line management responsibilities, um, I'm responsible for the Credit Institutions Directorate, and that's responsible for the uh, supervision of the banks, uh, both domestic and international credit unions and the payment and electronic money institutions. Uh, I'm responsible for the Insurance Supervision Directorate. Uh, so it's obviously a broad range of insurance firms there, life, non-life reinsurance and so on. Um, I have our policy and risk directorate, uh, which deals with all of the policy work, both domestic. So things like uh, you mentioned the introduction of the individual accountability regime, the consumer protection code, also the retail banking review that has been undertaken uh, quite recently, uh, but also deals with a broad range of European regulatory work as well. 
so all of the various directives and so on that are under development at European uh, level. That area is also responsible for a lot of our work around innovation um, and our innovation hub, which is how new or uh, emerging firms uh, deal with the bank in terms of coming into the financial services sector. Um, and then the last area in terms of line management is uh, called Prudential Analytics and Inspections. This is really about how the bank uses data to inform our work um, and also the work that we do when we're doing sort of deep dive and detailed inspections in the firms that we uh, supervise. Um, so that's the kind of line management part of my role. Uh, the international part of my role, I think, which uh, I think for all of us in the bank has grown very significantly over the last number of years. Obviously, we're a member of the European Union and a member of the Eurozone. So much of our work is grounded uh, in European work. Uh, and I'm the Central Bank of Ireland's member of the supervisory board of the ECB. So this is how we supervise the banks, uh, along with the ECB and all of the other central banks um, in the Eurozone. Um, and I participate in that on a number of other uh, European and, and international committees, um, including leading some work at the Financial Stability Board, which is looking at the non-bank or investment fund sector uh, in particular. Um, and then, um, as you mentioned yourself, uh, obviously I'm a member of the central bank's own board and um, so from a governance point of view the bank has a board comprising uh, the deputy governors and the governor and also a number of uh, independent non-execs um, and of course the secretary general of the department of finance and the board is responsible for the bank's overall strategy uh, and day-to-day operations. Thanks Sharon that is a truly uh, impressive set of roles and responsibilities for for one person. Um, so uh, before we discuss the future uh, what are your main reflections on the last number of years and how has the central bank and industry responses positioned us as we face into 2023 and its challenges? So I think, I mean, if you look at the macroeconomic environment uh, at the moment, uh, I think it's a complex and uncertain world. Um, but in a way, it represents uh, what's happened over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, um, if you look back. So, I mean, the economies and the financial system, I think, have faced the global financial crisis um, here in Europe, and particularly in Ireland, uh, we were affected, obviously, by the impact of, of Brexit. Uh, we've had then the pandemic, uh, and of course, most recently, uh, the horrendous war uh, and all of the sort of effects of that in terms of economic effects, um, including um, in the last uh, year or so, uh, the emergence of uh, very significant um, inflation. So I think all of this presents a kind of very complicated uh, macroeconomic um, environment. Um, and of course, that is very relevant, I think, also to the firms uh, that we supervise in terms of uh, the environment that they're facing into and the challenges that those firms have to deal with in terms of their business models um, and uh, their uh, approach. Uh, so I think people have to keep that sort of complexity very much in mind. Of course, through the pandemic, I think it's fair to say that the financial services industry uh, weathered that relatively well. It was an extraordinarily difficult time for individuals, um, but also for economies. But having said that, I think it's important also to remember uh, that at the time of the pandemic, there was very significant fiscal support, very significant monetary policy support and also regulatory support in terms of, for example, the release of capital buffers uh, to allow the banks uh, continue to lend through that difficult time. Um, so I think it's important to remember, you know, the sort of support that happened during that time that helped the industry weather that, that those storms. And of course, we're in a very different environment now in terms of the changed monetary policy environment, increasing interest rates um, and so on. Uh, so I think we can't be complacent, but just because we got through the pandemic very well uh, or relatively well uh, that that is necessarily the case for the future so I think we have to remain alert to the changing macro circumstances. And in your recent address at the Financial Services Annual Dinner um, you outlined the challenges leaders of financial services face in charting a course through the uncertainty and complexity of the global economic outlook. Um, 
this theme came up again when you spoke recently at the Institute of Directors. You've mentioned it this morning. Could you please describe for our listeners what you mean by that and how does this feed into and inform the setting of the central bank's priorities for 2023? Yeah, so I, I think as we've just been talking about, we are in this kind of complex um, and uncertain world and a world that has had uh, a number of uh, challenges, crises um, over the last number of years. And I think whether you work like I do in the central bank, you work in the public sector, you work in the financial services industry or, you know, any other sort of leadership role, uh, there's a big challenge for leaders in operating in a world that is so um, uncertain and so complex. Uh, and I suppose that was the reason why I, I chose that theme um, in terms of the remarks uh, that you referred to. I think if you think about it from the point of view of uh, firms, you know, whether you're talking about sort of big complex firms or some of the smaller firms, and, and we really do supervise uh, the whole spectrum, uh, you're talking about this complex environment. You're also talking about a world that's changing very much from the point of view of digitalization and innovation, a world that needs to change from a climate and sustainability point of view. And uh, firms are operating in that environment and trying to, I suppose, transform their businesses to meet some of those challenges. Uh, they're facing different types of competition, different competitive landscape, looking at prop, you know, being profitable and sustainable in terms of having that business, but also trying to meet their customer needs, uh, their regulatory uh, requirements and so on. So I think the overall landscape um, is very complex. Uh, and within that, obviously, from a regulatory point of view, we're very focused on uh, the risk aspects of that. So that presents uh, very many risks. So uh, trying to manage and mitigate uh, all of the risks that are kind of going on in this uh, complex and uncertain environment. Um, I think we, we are also very focused, I think, on the potential impact from an economic growth and inflation point of view. So um, I think globally, obviously, there are concerns about slowdown in the global economy. Looking more locally here at home at the bank, we just published our quarterly bulletin uh, last week. Uh, and while we expect growth uh, to slow somewhat, we're still forecasting sort of relatively positive outlook in terms of the growth numbers that we have. Uh, but we do expect it will uh, take uh, some time to get inflation back to target. So, you know, our forecasts are looking at inflation uh, still being around 2, 2.2 percent out to 2025. So I would say, you know, firms, I think, need to have this uh, macroeconomic uh, environment in their mind uh, when they uh, think about how they're developing uh, their business models and, and all of the things that they, they need to do over the coming years. Thanks, Sharon. I think you've painted a really good picture there, really pithy picture there of all the challenges mm. um, for anyone in, anyone in business, actually. Um, so turning to Central Bank, um, what are your key regulatory and supervisory uh, priorities for 2023? Yeah, so as you mentioned there, I mean, I think the governor has spoken about this um, a little bit um, and myself and my colleague Darby Rowland have uh, written to the firms that we regulate and supervise in recent weeks about these priorities um, so people will be able to see them there. I mean, I think it's fair to say we remain uh, very vigilant in this complex macroeconomic environment, particularly to make sure that firms... Um, have the financial and operational resilience that they need uh, to operate in this environment. So if you think back to where we've come from, it can be very difficult to forecast exactly what's going to happen. You know, people wouldn't necessarily have predicted the pandemic, wouldn't have expected a war uh, in Europe. Uh, but a sort of lesson, I think, from all of that is that firms need to be resilient to the unpredictable. And um, so I think at its core for us, focusing on financial and also operational resilience. And I think on up has been a lot more uh, focused on that in recent years. 
again, coming back to this point about digitalization as firms become uh, more dependent on technology, more digitized uh, than the risks of things going wrong, um, IT system issues, business continuity issues, and even uh, cyber attacks, for example, particularly in the current geopolitical environment has brought operational uh, resilience uh, very much uh, to the fore. Um, I think another area that we would be very focused on is uh, again, this idea that the financial services landscape is changing. Uh, so we see many of the firms that are already in the market kind of changing in terms of addressing some of these uh, big uh, macro developments. Uh, but we also see many new firms uh, looking to come to operate uh, here in Ireland. Uh, some of those, I think it's a kind of post-Brexit shift where firms have been moving here, uh, particularly as a result of that. Um, but also it's you know new startups, new innovators who want to come into the market. And I think it's fair to say, you know, we see innovation as a good thing. Um, there are lots of benefits that can come for innovation from consumers, for businesses uh, and so on. Uh, but we think it's very important, again, back to this idea of managing and mitigating risks. That innovation also brings sort of new kinds of, of risks. So I think in looking at some of the issues about innovation, whether you're a firm that's kind of looking to come into the market or whether you're a firm that's already operating, uh, we want to be clear about uh, the sort of expectations in terms of how we uh, think about um uh, risk management and so on. Uh, the last thing maybe I would highlight for now is around, I suppose we want really what we're trying to achieve, I think, is a financial system that really serves the needs of the economy and society. When there are big changes happening, um, as we've been talking about, then I think it's really important that firms continue to stay focused on what those changes also mean for their customers. So an example of that, which is very topical at the moment, um, is the effect interest rate increases are going to have on, on those who have borrowed, for example, but also on depositors. Uh, so I think, you know, for firms that are in the lending market, for example, staying very focused on the implication of this macro environment uh, for their customers and making sure that, you know, they're adapting their business uh, to meet the needs of those customers in what, from a, a, I think, a consumer point of view, is a, a very challenging environment now in terms of uh, the cost of living and so on. Thanks, Sharon. And um, turning to your the regulatory approach uh, by the central bank, um, the central bank identified um, six principles: um, forward-looking, connected, proportionate, predictable, transparent, and agile. Um, could you elaborate some more on on those six principles and how uh, how do you see these manifesting in practice? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll try to go through them um, each quickly. So I think this idea of being forward looking, which is also a very strong theme in our own uh, strategic plan. So the central bank's own strategic plan, um, I think, reflects this changing world uh, that we're in. So, I mean, I always think it's very important uh, to learn from history. Um, mm -hmm. Ireland had a, an exceptionally uh, problematic financial crisis, for example. We've seen also uh, very recently a, a bank failure in the US. So it is important that we take lessons from history, I think, and make sure that they inform our approach into the future. But we do also need to look to the future, I think, in terms of our priorities and, and make sure that we at the central bank, but also in the industry, are sort of keeping up with the pace of change mm -hmm. that we see happening in, in the world around us. I think when we think about being connected, um, it's a little bit back to what I mentioned about my own uh, responsibilities. So here in Ireland, we have... Uh, a complex and internationally focused financial services sector. So obviously a lot of the firms are servicing the local domestic market, but they're also servicing the market in Europe and at a global level. Uh, but financial services are also globally an interconnected system. You know, it's an interconnected um, financial market. Uh, and we as a central bank are also interconnected with uh, colleagues and, and, you know, other central banks and regulators around the world. So I think connection uh, or being connected is very much um, in that vein. 
Um, in terms of being proportionate, I would say, you know, we want regulation to really address the harm um, or the potential mm-hmm. for failures without unintended consequences. So the avoidance of unintended consequences. So if regulation goes kind of too far, it can uh, distort the market and so uh, and lead to suboptimal outcomes. So I think we're really trying to focus on weighing up the costs um, and benefits. Um, predictability is really about making sure that people know what the central bank is trying to achieve. And I think a lot of that is actually about communicating. So it's great to get a chance to talk to you today. But by communicating and being clear um, about what we're trying to do, um, I think we help people understand uh, where we're coming from. And of course, in a world that has a lot of uncertainty um, and where there's geopolitical tension and so on, I think being predictable um, is really quite important for uh, the kind of certainty that that brings. Um, I think transparency for us is very much about the public interest that's at the heart of everything that we do. Um, You know, I'm often asked about the role of the central bank to protect the industry, for example. But in fact, um, the central bank is very much about the public interest, serving the needs of the public um, and making sure that the uh, financial system works uh, in the interests of consumers and the economy. And I think for us to be able to achieve that, uh, we need to also build public trust in ourselves in terms of explaining what we do and and to some extent, I guess, uh, what we don't do. And then agility, I think, is very much about you know, this change, these changes that we see in the system and being able to sort of flex what we're doing to react uh, to different things uh, that we are are having. And I think it's a challenge for regulators globally to sort of keep up with the pace of innovation. You haven't mentioned crypto yet, for example, which is a big area of focus, but, uh, you know, keeping up with some of those changes uh, can be very challenging. But nonetheless, I think we sort of have to aspire to to be agile. But I think that those themes or those ideals behind regulation ultimately all come together in terms of what we're trying to do in the bank, which is, you know, safeguard the overall system, deliver price and financial stability, um, and ultimately uh, to serve the needs of the public. Um, and the central bank's 2023 supervisory priorities include the assessment and management of risks to financial and operational resilience, a continuing drive for fair outcomes for consumers and investors, um, and plus detecting and sanctioning market abuse. Taking operational resilience, which uh, you touched on earlier, um, are there particular areas that you think firms should be focused on as regards the effectiveness of their operational resilience frameworks in 2023? Yeah, so the first thing to start with is, well, what is operational resilience all about? Um, And I think for us, it's partly about the ability of a firm, but also about the sector. So again, thinking about the interconnected nature of the sector. So the ability of a firm or the sector as a whole to really identify and prepare for, respond to and adapt, but also very importantly, recover from um, operational uh, disruption. And of course, uh, you know, I think the idea in terms of what we're trying to achieve is to have operationally resilient firms who are basically able to recover their critical um, or important business services if they have a significant unplanned disruption and ultimately to minimise the impact um, on their customers and on the overall uh, financial system. So we have, um, I think, to try and, you know, help the industry focus on some of these issues uh, published across industry guidance um, in December 2021 and that followed on also a a consultation process where we talked to a number of industry bodies and regulated entities about the issues uh, that we have here and I suppose the real objective in terms of what we're trying to achieve in that guidance is to communicate to industry you know how we think they need to be thinking about these issues of preparing for responding to and recovering from um, operational disruptions Um, but at the heart of it I think again is this issue of interconnectedness um, and interdependence because what we do see, I think, quite frequently is, um, you know, maybe outsourcing to third parties or firms that are dependent on each other. So I think this idea of a firm lens, but also the kind of sector lens and the interconnections between the system um, are also very important to keep in mind. 
I think another purpose of the guidance, um, especially for large firms, I, I think it's true for all firms, but particularly for large firms, is really to make sure that, uh, you know, the boards and senior management of those firms understand our expectations and understand the things that they need to be thinking about from a board point of view in terms of overseeing the right uh, systems um, and uh, controls. So we published that guidance in December 2021. Uh, so I suppose our thinking is that now in 2023, uh, we'd really expect firms to have put that guidance into practice and to stood up their frameworks, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, so we want to see now how uh, that's uh, operating and it will be a focus uh, for us this year, particularly, I think, as, as I've said in this uh, you know, time where, uh, you know, the risks from digitalization and the risk also from a cyber uh, point of view and so on is also increasing. Turning now to uh, payments and e-money firms, the Dear CEO letter, Supervisory Findings and Expectations for Payment and Electronic Money Firms, published in January, was, in my view, a really comprehensive communication and contained a, a powerful set of messages for boards and risk and compliance functions within these firms. Um the central bank also acknowledged in that letter, um, and as you mentioned this morning, um, this sector could yield significant benefits in terms of innovation. What are the main challenges that you face when dealing with innovative firms seeking to establish here? Um, well, maybe first on this specific issue of the payment on e-money sector, um, I would say it's one of the sectors that I think is really transformed. So um, after Brexit, a number of firms uh, came to operate here that had been operating in the UK and they wanted to continue to operate into the EU. Uh, so we saw a lot of firms coming in in that context. Uh, but it is one of the areas, I think, also where we see innovation and digitalization really affecting uh, the industry. So the whole move to electronic payments, uh, for example, which even from a society point of view has been very significant uh, and, and very much accelerated, I think, also by the pandemic. And um, so our letter, uh, which uh, we issued recently, was really, I suppose, to try to bring more clarity to the sector about what our supervisory expectations um, are. And they're very focused, I think, on firms being risk based uh, and being outcomes focused. And that's very much kind of what we're focusing on uh, when we uh, look at the firms. And uh, I think uh, the letter really builds on work we've been doing in this sector to look at some of the key concerns um, uh, and uh, work we've done from a supervisory point of view, looking at individual firms, um, but also looking more broadly um, across the sector. I think going back to what we talked about, about our uh, approach to regulation, uh, we really saw this issue of transparency also being quite important. So being transparent and trying to explain uh, where we were coming from um, in terms of what we were seeing uh, in, in this sector uh, and how we expect uh, firms to address that. I think maybe to zone in on one of the key issues. So in this sector, um, they, they have funds, you know, belonging to individuals, belonging to their customers. And one of our top priorities uh, was around the safeguarding of those funds. Um, and if people have read the letter, they'll see that around one in four of these firms um, had identified themselves deficiencies in their risk management uh, frameworks. And I think one thing that was a particular concern for us about that was, you know, we had previously received positive attestation, as we call it, um, about their processes and so on. But, you know, when we went to look more specifically or when the firms went to look more specifically, uh, they really began to identify um, a number of deficiencies. So the nature of those deficiencies, the scale of those deficiencies really tells us that these firms have a lot more work to do around putting in place robust safeguarding uh, arrangements. So I think a big focus um, of our work is on that for this year. And in fact, all of these firms will now be required to do um, audits of their compliance uh, with the safeguarding frameworks. 
I think if you step back from that a little bit, though, it really goes to the need for firms to focus on kind of governance, risk management, internal controls, um, all the things that we could think of uh, when we think of a sort of really good and strong uh, compliance uh, framework. Um, and I suppose with new firms, um, in this case, PI, EMIs, but it, it is something I think we see a lot in new firms is their business growth sort of runs ahead of their ability to be able to manage it. So I think it's really important for firms to think about their growth plans on how do their governance, risk management, internal control frameworks sort of keep up with that, the changes in their business volumes or, or values, their new products and services, their new uh, distribution uh, channels. Uh, the other aspect I'd highlight, again, which I think is relevant for this sector, but also more broadly, is the role of the board in all of this. Um, so, you know, is the board really satisfied with the strategy that's in place and how that's being operationalized in this case through, for example, safeguarding requirements, but I think more uh, generally boards thinking about the whole approach to how firms um, execute their strategy um, are firms kind of attuned to the risks that they face and the uh, potential uh, impact of that. On the operational resilience point, which we, we touched uh, on there a moment ago, I mean, this was also an issue in this sector uh, where we did see um, last year in terms of our supervision, a number of incidents on outages being reporting. Uh, so again, making sure that these firms are focused on their IT risk and the controls and so on that go on in relation to that business continuity planning uh, for outages and so on. Um, and maybe the last thing um, I would mention about this sector in particular, and again, it's called out in the letter, um, is around uh, money laundering and terrorist financing risk. Uh, I think, again, this is an area where we've seen a lot more focus um, over the last uh, number of years. It's an area where you know, all firms, I think, have to be on top of that. But some firms, because of their business models, um, obviously maybe are more prone to AML uh, terrorist financing uh, risk. Uh, so uh, we really expect uh, these firms uh, to focus on that. Uh, taking the wider view, maybe, of what we can sort of learn from these firms uh, in terms of our broader approach to innovation. Um, as I mentioned, we have this um, innovation hub. Uh, this is how new firms that are coming into the market uh, sort of engage with us as part of the authorization process to come and talk to us about what they're planning to do. Um, I think we really see it as being about, uh, you know, new firms, fintechs having a way to engage with us, to talk to us about their business models um, and about their plans. Um, but it also allows us to see what's happening in the market, a sort of intelligence gathering in terms of the developments in the market, what's going on. And that, I think, has been particularly helpful in dealing with the PIEMI sector, um, but much more broadly. And um, over the last number of years since we set up the hub, we've had about 300 uh, different engagements with different types of firms um, who want to enter into the sort of innovative um, and uh, fintech sector. An important element of that, as I mentioned earlier, is that many firms are coming here as a jumping off point into the EU. Um, so I think it's uh, fair to say that firms uh, can expect that the authorization process, once it kicks off, uh, will be very focused on the sort of um, EU aspect. So making sure that we maintain kind of EU standards and that they're implemented in a coherent way with our uh, colleagues um, all across the, the EU. Um, and the letter states that 2022 was a further year of intense supervision of the e-money payment sector and goes on to talk about the deficiencies, as, as you've outlined, um, in, in governance, risk management and, and control frameworks. How should a firm start on the journey of addressing these deficiencies? 
Yes, so I think um, we say in the letter that one of the things that we expect uh, firms to do is to make sure that this letter in itself is is discussed with their board. um, And this is obviously a key responsibility um, of boards in terms of regulatory engagement, but also uh, making sure that firms have the right framework in place. And so I think what we expect, uh, at least initially, is firms to take the letter and the feedback and consider, you know, how does that apply to their own context, to their own operating model? Because in this sector, there are a number of different sort of operating models um, or business models so first of all thinking about well you know how do we measure up against the issues that have been raised in this letter and how do they uh, apply uh, for uh, for us Um, as I said I think the governance risk management and internal controls framework is a very important um, aspect so I suppose the board thinking about you know how have they uh, introduced that framework in their case and how are they um, overseeing that of course part of that is about having appropriate measures again to your business model um, and to your uh, scale and complexity, uh, but I think also looking at some of the issues I mentioned around operational continuity, uh, resilience of the system for your customers and the businesses and whoever else is kind of relying on the services um, that you uh, provide. And maybe going back to uh, money laundering, um, I think a key issue is if you are a firm that has a kind of agent or distributor model, uh, looking at how that's uh, set up, how are you getting assurance around how that's um, operating and how do, how does the board in particular have um, oversight uh, of all of that? Um, and then we have called out this specific requirement around the safeguarding, which I would say is one of our top priorities. And we're looking for an audit um, of compliance with the safeguarding requirements. Uh, so I think we would hope that firms now having got the letter um, are working to get those kind of audits underway um, and making sure that, you know, when they are due to be submitted to us, uh, that they're uh, submitted on, on time. Um, I think there's a, a kind of wide range of supervisory findings in that letter they'll apply maybe in slightly different ways uh, to different types of firms uh, but the, the focus is as I said on looking at well how does this apply to me where's the real gap for my firm against the expectations that are set out on this letter uh, and then focusing on the audit and whatever other gaps uh, you, you need, think need to be filled. Thanks and um, we do have an international listenership for the compliance file um, Sharon, so in case anyone's listening in and wants to set up um, a fintech in Ireland, wants to enter the Irish market uh, and seek authorization, what would a good start look like? Oh, well, the first thing is to mention again, the Innovation Hub, I think, which we set up uh, particularly to be a direct point of contact. Uh, particularly for fintechs and, and innovators. Um, and I think, as I said, this helps both those firms to get prepared for coming into the market here. And it also helps us to understand what's going on in terms of innovation and sort of what types of firms um, are coming. So I think the first thing I would say is, you know, if anybody wants to enter the market, it's really important to engage with us and get a good understanding of the regulatory sphere uh, that you're going to be operating in. And if you come to talk to us in the hub, um, I mean, clearly there's uh, some people working in the hub itself, but the hub is very plugged in internally within the organisation or within the wider central bank, looking at the different aspects of business models um, that you know firms may want to take, whether they ultimately want to be a payment institution or they ultimately want to be a method firm or or something else. Uh, so I suppose the purpose of the hub is to try and make sure that those um, kind of connections uh, happen. I think our experience is that firms that engage early 
and get a good understanding of the authorization process um, and our expectations um, are the ones that go most smoothly through uh, the actual authorization uh, process. Um, so I think that early engagement um, is very important. Uh, we have seen, I think, over the last number of years, um, some difficulties where firms, maybe the quality of the application isn't where we would like to see it, um, or where firms really haven't thought through some of the business model issues and then they're kind of changing their applications. Um, and I think also it's fair to say that, you know, we see innovators who are very focused maybe on technology and the kind of nexus of finance and tech coming together who maybe aren't fully prepared for a regulatory environment and, and what goes with that. Uh, so I think firms thinking about um, all of those things. Maybe the last thing I would say is um, lots of firms think, oh, I need to get through the authorization process. And that's true. It is an important process, but it is only the start. It's not the end. Uh, so once you've gotten through the authorization process and you become regulated um, or authorized, I mean, a lot of responsibility goes with that. Expectations from us uh, go with that. Um, and it will be then a kind of ongoing supervisory and regulatory uh, relationship. So I think firms also need to think a little bit about um, what happens um, afterwards. On our side, I would say, especially over the last 12 months or so, I mean, we have uh, gotten some feedback about the process that, you know, it can be difficult to get through. It can be difficult to understand our expectations um, and, you know, that the timelines can be difficult to understand. So we have done some work um, over the last little while to communicate our expectations um, more clearly. Um, and also uh, to try and I think health firms understand some of the issues around the timelines and so on. And we've tried to um, speed up some of our process in terms of making them a little bit more um, efficient. But I'd say my overall message is um, the length of time that it takes to author get authorised depends very much on what you want to do. So the nature, scale and complexity of what you want to do and also the level of preparation in firms. So uh, well-prepared firms uh, tend to find to think that the authorisation process is, is relatively straightforward and that they get a lot out of it in terms of kind of ultimately operating um, and ultimately engaging with us as a supervised entity. Thanks, Sharon. Um, <clears throat> turning now to um, ESG and sustainability, which... Um, it comes up now almost in, a, in every podcast, uh, no matter what the, the main subject. And the climate crisis is the challenge of our times. Last year, Governor McClough wrote to firms about the need to consider climate and other sustainability issues, as, as you mentioned earlier. Um, what is the central bank's current thinking about the state of ESG risk management in firms? Oh, I suppose the first thing to say is that the challenges associated with climate change and the kind of broader sustainability um, issues have huge implications for the economy overall, as well as for, you know, individuals, uh, for households, for businesses um, and for the financial system. Um, and I do think financial services firms have a really important role to play in the climate transition. Um, and I think we've called out that it's an area that we all need to focus on. So not just firms, but I mean, even for us in, in the central bank and indeed uh, the wider economy. Um, I think it's very much a, an evolving um, space um, and as I said we wrote to all uh, financial services providers I think setting out at a high level our, our broad expectations including on, on issues like uh, climate risk management so I suppose that at one level the message is relatively simple okay everyone all regulated institutions um, must consider how climate change is going to impact on their business on their business models on their operations um, and they need to put in place the internal arrangements that they need uh, to address this whether that's um, issues we've been talking about like 
like governance and risk management, for example, but also issues like staff awareness and training. And I think there is a big sort of skills and capabilities um, issue that we all have to address. And, and I know yourself, the Compliance Institute, have um, some important uh, work in relation to kind of making training and development uh, more available. And that's obviously a very important um, aspect. Uh, we did also recently publish a consultation paper on guidance on climate risk for the insurance sector. Um, so, as I said, clearly this is an issue for everybody, but there are some particular issues also um, in the insurance uh, sector. Um, so we've set out in that consultation paper some of our expectations around governance structures, uh, strategy, the approach to risk management um, and so on. Um, now, as I said, some of those issues apply to other uh, sectors um, as well, but I think it comes back, as always, to strong governance uh, tone from the top, um, a culture of responsibility um, and meaningful action. So I think ultimately... All firms need to understand the materiality of their exposure to climate change. They need to take a very broad view um, of the impacts of sustainability on their strategy. Uh, very much, I think, with both a short and then medium to longer term kind of lens. So immediate things that need to be dealt with, but also having a more medium to long uh, term uh, future. And I think a really important issue, and this is true also for us at the central bank, is, uh, you know, having commitments that are have sort of real measurable actions um, and, and accountability. And uh, climate and sustainable finance is, is one of the priority areas for us. Uh, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier about being focused on sort of the future and the issues that are on the horizon. Um, and it is an area where we'll be doing a lot more work uh, with the sector. Um, and in terms of supervision, um, what can firms expect to see uh, from the central bank? Um, have you any plans in that area? So I think, um, again, maybe going back to something we touched on earlier about being connected, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, work also going on at EU level on this whole agenda. So a lot of our supervisory work um, on these issues is really informed by developments at EU level. We also do a lot of uh, work with sort of peers and, and what are they uh, doing and, you know, how are they evolving um, their, their thinking here. Um, so we have this kind of EU package of, of regulation around sustainability, the EU sustainability framework, um, which has a whole range of statutory and regulatory requirements relating to climate and, and ESG risk. Um, so I think our kind of implementation of that will be very much informed uh, by what's happening at an EU level. And of course, this rulebook applies uh, across the banks, the insurers, the asset management firms and so on. So we will be looking, I think, very broadly across the financial services sector. I think from our point of view, uh, we are part of what's called the network for the greening of the financial system. Uh, this is really a global network of central banks um, and regulators where we can learn from each other about um, our supervisory engagement or about sort of economic research or, or you know, the importance, the role and importance of data in this whole agenda. So the NGFS, this network, is a really important way for us to benchmark uh, how Ireland and how our approach here sort of compares uh, with other uh, uh, regulators. But I think ultimately, if you think about our supervisory objectives in this place, what we're in this space, what we're really trying to promote are high levels of trust and confidence in the financial system, uh, making sure that customers are treated fairly, customer and investor interests are protected, um, and that the transition, I suppose, is as orderly as possible. I mean, I think you hear a lot of people talking about the climate transition um, and the risk of that being um, disorderly. So while there are other actors, you know, a very important role for government and so on, I think given the important role of the financial sector in the economy, it is important that we try to make this um, as orderly as possible. A particular issue, I think, for consumers and investors is around the risk of greenwashing. 
you know, so the idea that, I mean, ultimately, I suppose products, uh, the risk of mis-selling of products that appear to be green or climate uh, friendly or climate appropriate, uh, which aren't. Uh, so again, it's an area I think where there's a global focus um, and something that, uh, that we will be uh, very focused on as well. And maybe just to mention, I mean, the, the issue is so fundamental for us in terms of our work um, and in terms of the importance of this issue to the economy and the financial system that even internally within the central bank, uh, we set up a climate change unit uh, last year. And this is very much about, you know, coordinating all of our work. So the bank's own commitments um, as, a, as an organisation. We're also an investor. You know, we have a very big investment portfolio. So looking at our investment portfolio, um, but also looking at how we coordinate that work um, across the different um, aspects of our work, whether that's financial stability, understanding what's going on in the economy um, and understanding what's going on um, in regulated firms. Um, and of course, to bring that all together, and I think to sort of support the industry and some of the challenging issues uh, that we have uh, there, we have set up a, a forum, an industry forum um, on climate and sustainable finance, which gives us an opportunity I think, to talk very much to the industry about its own experiences. Um, but also it brings the industry together with climate experts and academics and so on to hear some of the, the thinking on this um, and the forum meets uh, twice a year. Um, and at the moment is focused very much on this issue that you mentioned yourself around sort of risk management and, and how firms should really uh, think about that. Thanks. And in terms of um, compliance professionals and our, our, our community out there, um, there Sharon met, did mention the, the programme that we have. It has started up, but you can sign up for next year, the programme for ESG and sustainability for compliance professionals. Um, and just if I may, Sharon, you mentioned the Network for the Greening of Financial Services. They have a website and they I have, think it's, yeah. it's a really good resource, actually, if if some of our listeners want to, to, to learn a bit more about this, um, I'd, 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 um, I'd advise them to go and have have a look at that website. Actually. Yeah, definitely. Very recommended. I think also as a sort of place that brings together a lot of the thinking about the whole issue. Turning now to more recent developments, I could not speak to you without bringing up the individual accountability regime. Uh, on the 9th of March, the IAF Bill 2022 was enacted, with the central bank launching on the 13th of March its three-month consultation on key aspects of the implementation of the IAF. What are your hopes for the individual accountability regime um, and how it will improve standards in financial services firms? Well, it's a very topical issue, obviously, as you say, the, the legislation has quite recently been passed. Um, and, and I mean, I'll talk in a moment, for example, about our consultation. But I think it's important to ground the individual accountability regime in our wider framework for financial regulation. So it's not something that sort of stands in isolation. You know, it's very much grounded, I think, in the in the broader uh, framework. And then this process that we're going through now in terms of consultation and engaging uh, with industry, but also, I think, much more broadly with the rest of our stakeholders um, is one of our, our key priorities. Uh, for 2023. So we were uh, pleased to be able to launch the consultation uh, just there in the, in the last few days. And the consultation includes the publication, for example, of some of the draft regulations and guidance that will support the implementation of the, of the regime. Uh, so why are we doing that? Well, I suppose all of those publications are trying to bring clarity uh, to the expectations that we have for how the framework is going to be implemented by uh, firms. And I think there are three kind of areas of focus. So the Senior account Executive Accountability Framework itself, or SEER, uh, the conduct standards that will apply. And then there are changes or enhancements to the wider fitness and probity regime as a result um, of the new uh, legislation. So they're the different aspects that we're consulting on um, at the moment. So I think the framework, um, to some extent anyway, is a response to the governance, uh, culture and accountability deficiencies that were witnessed in the tracker mortgage scandal um, and also in the bank's report on behaviour and culture, particularly in the retail banking sector. 
I would say that's against the backdrop, again, going back to the very beginning around the global financial crisis and some of the issues that raised about the general standards of governance, uh, culture and accountability in financial services um, more broadly. Um, but anyway, back to the framework itself, I think, again, it should be considered in the context of our wider framework and our, our multi-year strategy, uh, which we published about 18 months ago. So in the end, it's about safeguarding the stability of the financial system um, and putting in place, I think, really effective regulation of financial services um, and markets so that the best interests of consumers are protected and so that the financial system um, operates in the best interest of its customers um, and the economy. And we really see the framework, I think, as being an additional safeguard uh, to protect uh, these uh, these um, aspects. Um, so I think uh, a key aspect of how we've designed and our approach to the implementation uh, now that the legislation has been passed is basically to leverage or closely align with governance and management structures that are already in individual firms. So the application of the IAF and how it will work will obviously differ depending on the, the size and scale of the firms and so on. So it's not really our intention to sort of dictate to firms how exactly they should go about doing this or that. Um, I think it's really about saying to firms, you know, you need to look at how you're organized you need to be clear about who's responsible for what uh, you need to be able to ensure that you know in your own organization there are common conduct standards that apply uh, widely and then also of course that there are the special standards and um, that will apply to senior executives in terms of their uh, responsibilities um, and so on um, I think as I said IAF is very much grounded in our, our wider framework so along with the IAF uh, we'll also be uh, introducing a, a more enhanced approach to the supervision of culture and behaviour um, in firms um, and again this is not about telling firms that you know the culture that they should have which is very much uh, for the firms themselves I mean I think that is a key role and responsibility of boards um, and senior management um, but it's about I suppose us looking at how our firms uh, governed uh, you know, how is culture being developed within those firms? How is uh, a firm, you know, meeting the needs of its customers um, and balancing that against, you know, the need to be profitable um, and also meet the needs of your your uh, shareholders' uh, interests? But I think the main message on IAF uh, now is there are these different dimensions of SEER, uh, the Common Conduct Standards and the Enhancements to Fitness and Probity, and we are having a public consultation um, and the purpose of that public consultation, I think, is really to hear feedback about, you know, how firms um, expect uh, their regime to be introduced and operationalized and how we're going to go about that. So we look forward to getting uh, the feedback from the industry and, and wider stakeholders um, over the next number of months. But in the end, it's about good governance, good culture. Um, and in fact, a lot of the feedback we hear from other jurisdictions uh, that have already introduced uh, similar regimes is that, in fact, it brings a lot of clarity to who's responsible for what in firms. And, and that's a good thing, I think, for firms themselves, for the boards of firms, for us as regulator and supervisor, um, and hopefully also uh, for the wider system. Um, and while the consultation is ongoing, what should firms be doing now to lay the groundwork for the rave regime coming into effect? Yeah, so I think firms can already look at the legislation uh, which has been acted already, and I suppose some of the issues um, that we've raised um, in the framework. So I think firms can already be thinking about the obligations that this is going to bring. They can also be looking at their um, existing governance structures, even to begin thinking about, well, who is responsible for what uh, within a firm um, even now? Um, ultimately, firms are going to have to define uh, the roles and responsibilities of, of senior executives uh, and look at things like reporting lines um, and delegations. So I think firms can also be looking about how are they organised around those things um, already. Uh, there will be some changes to the fitness and probity regime. So I think firms can 
also look at their current fitness and probity processes um, and see, you know, are there enhancements uh, that they're going to have to make to that as part of this uh, annual certification uh, requirement. Um, and, you know, going to the point about culture, um, understanding, you know, where are they at in terms of culture already um, and values and, and maybe comparing some of that to the principles that are set out uh, within the IAF. So I think there are a number of steps that firms can already uh, do to look at whether there are gaps um, or changes uh, that they, they need to already be working on. Um, as uh, my colleague Derville Rowland said when we launched the consultation uh, the other day, you know, I think we are really focused on positive outcomes, the interests of consumers um, and the, the framework is really trying to underpin sound governance. So I think firms taking it from that point of view, you know, do they have sound uh, governance uh, and, and how do the steps that I've mentioned uh, that they can take already sort of inform um, sound governance um, and clearer lines um, of accountability. Um, so I think preparatory work that can be done. But having said that, I, I think it's still very much an open process in terms of the consultation um, and the exact details of, of how the, the uh, new requirements um, are going to be implemented. And we look forward to, to hearing uh, from uh, the industry. And indeed, I think it's a, an issue of, of much wider interest, so wider stakeholders as well over the next uh, couple of months. Thanks, Sharon. And if I may, the role for compliance officers really will be to take the, the fear factor out of it. While it will be for the board, board will take responsibility and it'll be implemented um, probably via uh, other functions in the organisation. It really is for compliance officers um, to help and support um, through this implementation. Um, well, thank you, Sharon. Uh, we've come to the end of our podcast. I know you're very busy and today is an especially busy day for you. So really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today um, and for sharing your your, your thoughts um, on the important regular themes and talking points today. Uh, thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. And obviously, compliance officers play a very important role um, in the firms that we regulate and supervise. And it's great to have an opportunity uh, to talk to you and all of them today. So appreciate your time. Um, and thank you to the listeners of the Compliance Files podcast, uh, which was brought to you today by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful, and we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.